Last week we were talking about the call of the kingdom to Israel and to the outcasts. The call of the kingdom to Israel was 13, 1 through 9. And then the call of the kingdom to Israel and the outcasts started in 14, 12. And what's going on is Yeshua is calling people into the kingdom. Of course, the deal is that the ones that should be coming into the kingdom, which is Israel, are giving him a hard time. So what he's intimating is, since the ones who were invited to the feast aren't going to show up, we're going to go out and we're going to fill up the place. What that indicates to me is that they're going to go to the Gentiles, which of course they did. We're now down to 15, still the same idea. And what we've got here is three cases of something lost. So we're going to have the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then the parable of the lost son. What each of these is, is an intensification. So it'll start off one sheep in a hundred, and then it'll go to one coin in ten, and then finally it'll go to one in two, because in fact both sons are lost. Different reasons. So now we're in Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And again, we've had a number of conflicts with the Pharisees over status and money. It's sort of a running thing, status and money with the Pharisees. And as I said a time or two ago, the Pharisees excel in the outward appearance of being religious. And the only reason that they do so, this is genealogy, is that's what you need to demonstrate to have status in that society. In order to be looked upon as someone high class and so forth, you have got to do all of the religious stuff. So they're doing all of the religious stuff, you know, they're tithing and praying and all that kind of thing. But what Yeshua is doing is exposing that their heart isn't really in it. They're simply doing it for status. So in this verse 15, where they're grumbling about him eating with scribes and sinners and tax collectors, what that is is an assault on status. What should be happening is that the religious establishment should be reaching out to the sinners and trying to bring them in and trying to turn them into Torah-observant people. Instead, what they're doing is they are turning up their noses. And so when he comes and gathers crowds of these people who are listening to his teaching, there's A, jealousy, because he can draw a crowd and they can't. And there is B, this sort of hyper-religiosity, who does this guy think he is kind of thing. All right, so now down to verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the open country 
and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Remember the setting here. These are rural villages. These are not big cities. So this is like going through someplace like Mead or Alt, where it's a, a small rural community, and they're very attuned to agriculture as opposed to the big city like Jerusalem, where the meat all comes in in blister packs. So when he's talking about a metaphor of shepherds, what he's talking about is very often, in fact always, the flock represents the family's wealth. So this business of a hundred sheep is not ConAgra. This is not a factory industrial kind of a thing where they've got millions of them and they process them wholesale. This is a family deal. And typically what happens in those places is sheep herding doesn't demand much skill, but it does demand responsibility. Talking to Travis, one of the times I was out there, says, you know, sheep go around looking for a way to die. They're stupid, and they're nature's victims. I mean, you can always tell the victims they're shaped like a meatloaf, right? A sheep is shaped like a meatloaf. So is a duck, so is a goose, so is a prairie dog. They're nature's victims. So the idea of a sheep wandering off or getting lost or any of those kinds of things is sort of a pretty normal thing. And to a family operation, a sheep represents a significant amount of wealth for the family. Wool, meat, breeding capacity, everything. The other thing is, it is not the case that the sheep are left alone when this guy goes out looking for them. There would be usually a couple of people out there, and, and so it would be irresponsible for him to leave the sheep all by themselves because he'd come back and there would be 97. So somebody is still keeping track of them, but he goes and finds it and, of course, rejoices when he does. So this is the first vignette. And by the way, this is in the context of tax collectors and sinners. These are people who are lost according to the religious establishment. And the fact that they're congregating to listen to him, and in the first place, there's sort of kind of jealousy because he can draw a crowd and not sure that they can, but the other is beneath their social status. And so the, the first of these parables is he's talking about these people who are lost, and he is a shepherd, and so he is going to go find the lost ones. Now, the last thing down in verse 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That is not to say that there's something wrong with the 99. It is not that what you really ought to do is you ought to go out and be a reprobate for 20 years so that when you finally come to God, everybody's going, yeah, all right. That's not a good strategy. 
and that's not what Yeshua is advocating here. He's simply saying that we've got this flock of sheep, and most of them are well-behaved, but when we get one who has been lost and we find him, that's occasion for a celebration. It's just like the shepherd doesn't celebrate every time he brings the sheep home at night and puts them in the sheepfold. There isn't a party because, ooh, I got back with my sheep, put them in the sheepfold. Let's all have a party. That's not the case. The only thing that causes the party is the rarity of finding the lost one. Down to verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. you got to remember setting. This is a farming community. And I don't know what the status of farming communities is today, but I can remember as a kid when they gave income, you know, government statistics, it would always be for non-farming families. And the reason for that is that farming families usually eat pretty well unless there's a drought or a disaster. I mean, you've got gardens, you've got the crops that you've planted, you've got your flocks and herds and so forth. So in fact, you may not have a lot of cash, but you're not hurting. Whereas if you dwell in the city, if you don't have any cash, you also don't have flocks and herds and acres of crops. So if you don't have any cash, you are hurting. You see the difference. So in a farming community like this, 10 silver coins represents a lot of money. Not that the people are poor. They aren't necessarily. They've got flocks and herds and gardens and fields and all that kind of stuff. One can assume that they are fairly comfortable, but cash is rare. So the idea of losing 10% of your cash is a big deal. A silver coin, a single one, represents a day's wages for a common laborer. So if you're out there mixing bricks, or you're out there swinging a scythe, or you're out there carrying rock or bricks, or unskilled labor, a denarius was a day's wages. So when you get hired at the harvest, for example, we need more people here to pick the grapes, or we need more people here to reap the, the corn, or whatever it is, a day's wage there would be one silver coin, one denarius. Now, for a skilled laborer, market prices. A skilled laborer, blacksmith, or a carpenter, or somebody that's that skilled, it goes up. It was not the case that everybody works for a denarius per day. This is for unskilled labor. So in a farming community, a day's wages is a big deal because there are obviously things that a farm can't produce and you need money to get those. Unless, for example, you happen to own a vineyard, if you want wine for Shabbat, you've got to go find somebody who sells wine and pay them for it. One other thing, I'm now quoting Bailey, 
and his commentary. One of the things that you will see in commentaries about this is that the silver coin might have been part of her dowry. And if she has given it away and gotten rid of it, there would be suspicion on the part of her husband that perhaps she is out fooling around. Bailey doesn't agree with that. You've seen the pictures of Middle Eastern women with the coins on some kind of a headdress around their face. That is not this culture. That's Bedouin culture. One of the commentaries you will see is husband comes home and sees, hey, wait a minute. One of your coins is missing from your headdress there, gal. What's been going on? That's a different culture. That's Bedouin culture that you see that. So his comment is that's not what's going on. It's just simply this is a farm community and a day's wages in silver is a big deal. So if I've lost one of my coins, I am going to do what I have to do to find it. And then just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So now this brings us down to the prodigal son. And this is where we will camp out for a while. Luke 15 and verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now full stop. What the kid is essentially doing is saying, Dad, I wish you were dead so that I could get my inheritance. And Bailey lived in the Middle East there, Lebanon, uh, Israel, and so forth. And he talked to people in villages. And he says, what would you do if your younger son came and asked for his inheritance? And the inevitable response was, I would grab a big stick and I would start beating him. Pretty common response. So the fact that this guy gives him the money is a cultural shock. And by the way, this matches with the previous parable where the guy yells out from the crowd, hey, make my brother divide my inheritance with me. Remember we talked about that a couple of times ago. The deal there, in the Hebrew economy, the elder son gets a double portion. And the reason for that is so that he has the resources to keep the family together. An example I've used, if you have a family farm with 100 acres and you've got three sons, theoretically then, this 100 acres would be divided into four 25-acre plots. The eldest would get two of them, the two youngest would get one each. Which means now, instead of having one farm of 100 acres, you now have one of 50 and two of 25. So with fencing and all that kind of stuff, what you've done is you've reduced the family's productivity by dividing things up. So the idea of the older son getting the double portion is so that he can become the head of the family, can manage the family, and has got the resources to do it. This younger son then is going to get one third of the father's inheritance. All right, now one other thing. In this economy, in this society, as the father has two sons, at some point, the father may relinquish management of the place. He continues 
to benefit from the fruit of the land. He can buy himself a pickup truck, do all of that stuff to manage the land, but what he can't do is waste it so that he destroys the inheritance of his sons. In other words, he has a fiduciary responsibility to his sons to maintain whatever the estate is. He gets to use it, he gets to manage it, but he doesn't get to waste it. In fact, in lots of traditional societies, Europe, for example, during the Middle Ages, sons could bring a legal action against parents for wasting the resources. You're destroying my inheritance, and you have a legal interest in the property because you're the heir. So for the father here to turn around and give the younger son a third of that and let him head off and waste it is just sort of naturally annoying to the older son because what's happened is the estate has been diminished and once dad passes on I will get two-thirds of it and then my brother and I can work out how this works but for him to take a third of the estate and split town affects me as well as dad. One other thing, there's all sorts of stuff in this parable. There are two lost sons, not one. Obviously the younger son has got a problem with dad because for him to go and demand his inheritance before father has assumed room temperature is to say, I want you dead. You're more valuable to me dead than you are alive, dad. But the other part of that is it's the firstborn's job, part of his social responsibility, to heal family rifts like that. I've got dad and I've got younger brother. Younger brother hates dad. I've got to be a peacemaker here. He's not doing that. There's no intimation here that older brother has been consulted in any of this. And as I say, in this particular society, it's sort of like the parable of the Good Samaritan, where you have a priest comes by, then a Levite comes by, then a Samaritan, screech, and everybody's head does a reset because what they're expecting to hear is a priest, a Levite, and an Israelite. So to have a Samaritan be the hero of the story is a major disconnect. Same here with the setup of this story major disconnect and so you've got everybody's attention now because what you've done is you've set up something that is whoa where is he going with this one because it, I can't imagine anything like this so he divided his property between them not many days later the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey to a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living and when he had spent everything a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Obviously, for a Jewish boy to be herding pigs is, again, a big disconnect in the story. It's a way of emphasizing 
how badly off this kid is. The other thing is, of course, if you've read Proverbs, which I'm sure all of you have, the idea of a young fool with money is all over Proverbs. There are just lots and lots of opportunities for a young fool with money to get himself in trouble. And this guy obviously does. And the idea that he leaves and goes to a far country, again, shows how alienated he is from the family. He doesn't move next door and buy a condo. He gets completely out of the country. So this is a measure of his alienation. And he's bought himself friends in wherever it was he lighted. What we discover is the only reason that anybody was friendly to him is because he was spending freely. As soon as the bar tab ran out, so did his friends. It's entirely possible that he's going into debt. So his wages, if you will, are going maybe to pay off some debt. Don't know. But if you read English literature from the 1700s to the early 20th century, it's a very common thing for an aristocratic young man or young woman to be in debt. And it's sort of a staple of those books of coming back and, Dad, can you give me some more money? Or Guardian, can you give me some more money? Or can I have an advance on my allowance? So the idea of living well above your means and racking up some debt is certainly a big deal in English literature. I have no idea about here whether or not anybody would lend him money. That's what Hebrew slavery was. You would get yourself into debt and you couldn't pay it. And basically what they did is gave you a job you couldn't quit until either six years or you paid off your debt. Hebrew slavery was the same kind of thing. 17. But when he came to himself, in other words, when he realized that, oh, I've messed up here. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here from hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he's coming back. He's not expecting anything. Basically, he's going to say, Dad, give me a job. I have wasted all my resources. I have to get a job. You know me and I know you. I would rather work for you than this guy up here herding pigs comment was his father should have just given him a job and let him work at a job for a while. comment was tough love, and there is something in that. One of my sons got himself in a twist in college. So I jerked him out of college, and I brought him home, and I gave him a D-handle shovel. And he dug the entrance to our basement with a shovel. And by the end of that, we had a really nice entrance to the basement had somebody come and saw the concrete tub, and then I had him break it up with a sledgehammer and carry it out to the dumpster. And at the end of that, he's become a fine young man. So the idea of tough love is there's nothing wrong with it. The reason that 
that is not the way this story is, is because Yeshua is making a different point. If dad just gave him a job, then the parable is either much longer or he doesn't ever get to the lesson. Verse 20, and he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Rural culture. Everybody knows what this kid has done. Small town. So everybody sees this boy coming back. And so as this kid walks the length of Main Street to his dad, everybody's going to be looking out the window and snickering and just, you know, wait until he finally gets home and dad is going to lower the boom on him. So what dad does to foreclose that is dad runs out to him and meets him. Now, in that culture, a man of that status does not run down the street. A man of that status walks in a dignified manner at all times. So for this guy to hike up his skirt, sprint down to get his son, that's worth a bowl of popcorn all by itself because everybody is watching to see what's going to happen. And so what he's doing is he is short-circuiting all of the gossip that would normally happen as this kid walks down the street. comment was that one of the things it says is while he was a long way off, his father saw him. And you could infer from that that dad has been looking down the road, hopefully, for quite a while. So verse 21, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Notice that he doesn't get to finish his prepared speech. Remember, the speech he prepared is, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please just give me a job. He doesn't get to finish because dad interrupts him mid-speech. But the father said to the servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. We've all been through this before. There's no refrigeration. So when you're going to have a feast, you store your meat on the hoof. That's what the fur is for, to keep the meat from spoiling or the feathers, or whatever it is. And depending on the size of the celebration, you know, if you're having a couple friends over for dinner, you kill a chicken. If you're having a dozen or so, you kill a sheep. Killing a fatted calf is the whole town. I don't know whether some of you may have been, but we have done a calf at one point in the congregation. We finally decided that all we can handle are sheep. But years ago, we did a calf. We had a lady here in the congregation that worked at a dairy. And they would call their bull calves. So we bought one of them. And this was not a big calf, about 400 pounds. And we couldn't eat it all. What I'm saying is, killing the fatted calf is, again, a town-wide celebration. Everybody's been watching from behind their curtains to see how this drama is going to play out. 
And so what dad is doing is making it abundantly clear to everybody that all is forgiven. We're not going to hold it against him. And I don't want you holding anything against him. Comment was it's also a measure of the amount of joy he had, and that is certainly true. Ulteriorly, everybody in town knows this kid's back, he's forgiven, he's now my son again, we don't want any nonsense. That's also a part of the message. Notice, by the way, in 24, this my son was dead and is alive again. How many times have you heard in traditional societies, you are dead to me? In other words, you have messed up so badly that I am disowning you. As far as I am concerned, you're dead. So big deal here. 25. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Now that's interesting in itself. He doesn't go into the house to see what's going on. He gets a servant and says, what's going on? Now, he's the heir. The party is happening in his house. So the question becomes, well, why don't you just walk in and see what's going on? As opposed to calling a servant out there and asking. The people in town are close, so, and I suspect they've been watching this whole thing from behind their curtains. So gathering them is no big deal. We don't know how far away the older son is. So verse 26, and he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And as we've said before, the family dynamics here have not been healthy. At the beginning of this whole thing, it was the elder brother's job in that society, culturally, to make peace. He didn't do that. Then this kid has taken a third of his father's wealth and squandered it. So... He's naturally a bit ticked, but there's something else that's been festering. He has objectively good reasons to be ticked, but there's more. 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Ding, 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 ding. Obviously, there has been friction in this family for a long time. And the fact that the older brother never felt like he could go to his father and say, hey, I want to have a party with some of my friends. Can I get a kid? I don't know if he never asked because he thought the answer was going to be no, or whether he did ask and the answer was no. I, I just don't know what that is, but clearly he's resentful. Verse 30, but when this son of yours, notice that this is not my brother, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, not sure how he knows that, but when this son of yours 
came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now notice that the thing stops there. We don't have any idea whether the older brother comes in. It's just left hanging. That's very appropriate to the situation. Remember, in the situation that leads up to these three vignettes, what we've been doing is we have been inviting Israel to come into the kingdom. He's been coming as a prophet and saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is here. Come into the kingdom. And Israel is refusing in the person of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the older brother in this sequence that he's doing. So what he's saying is, Pharisees, you're welcome to come in too. And this thing is left hanging because it isn't clear that the Pharisees are going to come in. So it's very much situation dependent. What we've got then is started off with being sneered at for eating with sinners and tax collectors. Then we told these three parables. First parable is one lost sheep out of a hundred. The next one is more intense. One lost coin out of ten. The third one is more intense yet. One lost son out of two. And in fact, we may have two lost sons. Shama